I invite you to please turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 will be our sermon text this evening, the entirety of the psalm. Give ear now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving Word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Your word says that those who have their transgressions are forgiven are blessed. That those who have their sins atoned for are to be counted blessed. Help us to ponder these things in you tonight. Help us to rejoice in them all the more. We ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. In 1970, the world was enamored with Erich Segal's A Love Story. And this film follows the relationship of Oliver, a wealthy Harvard student, and a working-class girl named Jenny. And Oliver's parents, who are wealthy elitists, threaten to cut him off financially should he continue to see this young lady. And of course, the couple's love overcomes this hurdle. Excuse me. Of course, the couple's love overcomes this hurdle, and Oliver finishes school, but shortly thereafter, they find out that Jenny is terminally ill, and Oliver reaches out to his estranged parents to ask for financial help and never hears back. As time goes on, Jenny passes away, and as Oliver is leaving the hospital, his wife having just died, he sees his father, and his father says, son, I'm sorry that I didn't support you while she was alive. And I'm sorry even more that I didn't support you while she was dying. And Oliver looks at his father and says a line that his wife had said to him earlier in the film. He says, love means never having to say that you're sorry. 
That line puts the exclamation point on what was at the time the sixth highest grossing film of all time. It is still ranked number nine in the top 100 romantic films of all time. Now, I came here to preach God's word. Why am I saying these things to you? To underline the fact that that line struck a chord with our culture and that things have not changed much in the 50 years since it's been released. We live in a time where maybe we don't use that phrase anymore and the culture doesn't use that phrase anymore. Love means never having to say you're sorry. But we do live in a time where love is love. And to even suggest that somebody might need to change is akin to not loving them at all. And the question that the church has to answer, the question before us tonight, is that true? Well, if we consult Psalm 32, the answer is, is of course, a resounding no. Psalm 32 is the second of the penitential psalms, and in it, David chronicles his movement from the internal groaning that comes with sin into the declaration of blessedness that begins the psalm, and into the admonition to rejoice that it closes with. It's an admonition to be glad in the Lord and to rejoice, all you righteous. And some of you may know Psalm 32 is a companion to the more famous Psalm 51. You may recall Psalm 51 is David's famous prayer of contrition, where he would pray famously, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 17. He also says in that psalm, Lord, restore me to the joy of your salvation. And Psalm 32 is David's response to having been restored to that joy. It's his reflection on having been washed, having been purged, having been shown mercy. And having joyously received the forgiveness from the Lord, David now writes Psalm 32 that he might encourage others to come to the Lord seeking that very thing. To approach the throne of grace boldly, as we said in our confession tonight. In short, David is writing his readers and encouraging them to repent. Now, off the bat, we need to say a couple of things about repentance, a couple of common ways that we can get off track when that topic comes up. We want to be careful to avoid two common errors. One is to think of repentance as something that we only do at the outset of the Christian life. Repentance is something that a non-Christian does to become a Christian. I remind you that David writes Psalm 32 as a believer. And he's writing it to you, other believers. He's writing in much the same way that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the church at Rome, which was known throughout the world for their faith. And yet, in that letter, he feels the need to say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. No, repentance is a lifelong thing a Christian does. The other error that we want to avoid when we talk about repentance is to think that repentance is what makes one a Christian, that it's the grounds of God's forgiveness of our sins. And I want to say no. Our catechisms and confession of faith make rather plain what makes one a Christian is the Holy Spirit working faith in us and thereby, that is, by the faith uniting us to Christ. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, section 3 says, of repentance... Although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ. They're saying, don't trust your repentance for, to save you. 
Your repentance is not why God forgave your sin. Christ is why God forgave your sin. Yet, it, referring back to the repentance, is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. Or to put this another way, on one hand, God doesn't forgive you because of your repentance. On the other hand, you do repent because God has given you the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with those caveats out of the way, we can say that David is saying at least two things to the church tonight from this psalm. First of all, that repentance brings blessing and joy to the individual. That's verses 1 through 5. Repentance brings blessing and joy to the individual. And secondly, that that blessing and joy then calls the church to ongoing repentance. Verses 6 through 11. First of all, repentance brings blessing and joy to the individual. We tend to think of this in only negative terms. We tend to think of repentance only as pertains to what it says about us, that we must swallow our pride, that we are inadequate. And while that's true, David says that repentance is the source of great blessing in his life. Some translations will render the word as happy. And while the term contains the idea of happiness, it transcends it. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is subjective. I feel happy. I don't feel happy. No, blessedness is long-lasting, and it's objective. The Lord of heaven and earth has said, if you are forgiven of your sins in Christ, you are blessed. That's an objective declaration. It doesn't matter how we feel. It is true because God has said it is true. Charles Spurgeon said of this passage, Pardoning mercy is of all things in the world most to be prized, for it is the only and sure way to happiness. To hear from God's own spirit the words you are forgiven is joy unspeakable. And I have to ask the question tonight, does that elicit joy from you? To hear from God's word that sins are forgiven, or is it something that you take for granted? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance, not knowing that the forbearance and patience of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Perhaps we slip into this because we forget the depths of wickedness that sin can bring us to. Consider David's context here. At the time of David's writing this psalm, at the time of his repentance, he has lusted after and committed adultery with another man's wife. And if that's not bad enough, it's made worse by who the man is. This is Uriah the Hittite. First Chronicles chapter 11 would list him as one of David's mighty men. One of the men who was with David from the beginning, even when David is trying to reunite the kingdom after the demise of Saul, Uriah the Hittite is there, would have been part of the camp that said these words, We are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse, peace Peace to you and peace to your helpers, for God helps you. First Chronicles 12, 18. Uriah the Hittite would have said these words. And just a few years later, David would take his wife. And David would try to cover that up and fail. And to cover up the failed earlier cover-up, he has him killed. And David knows by his own admission, when told a similar parable, a parable of a similar situation, he knows the just verdict on this man. He knows that the the man who has done this thing shall surely die. And then God's prophet turns to him 
and says, Thou art the man. And as David realizes that he is the man, he was the one who had sinned against the Lord. He was the one who had done this wicked thing. He confesses and he hears these words, The Lord hath put away thy sin. It's as if the Lord says, Yes, David, you do deserve to die. But you will not, because I have made provision for this. And likewise, it is when you understand that you are the man, when I understood that I was the man who had sinned against the Lord, and that for reasons known only to God, he has chosen you to receive the redemption purchased by Christ, then your heart will truly sing, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. When was the last time that you considered the just verdict of God over your own life? That on your own merit, you not only fall short as if you were aiming for the right target and you missed, no, that your your, your thoughts, your desires, your deeds, the lusts of your heart are actually hostile towards God. Apart from Christ, that is the condition of all natural men. It's easy for us, especially in a time like this, to grumble and lament about the sins of others. It's easy to bemoan the wickedness of our culture in all its various ways, the distortion and perversion of marriage, the deliberate adding fuel to the fire on racial relations, and the most horrific of which is, of course, the murder of unborn children in the womb. It's it's easy to look at the culture and say, that's wicked, and we should We absolutely should. We should say with the psalmist, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Therefore, because your way is good, God, I hate every false way. That's good and right. But if we want to understand the blessedness that God offers his people, we must grapple with the fact that, but for the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, I could be caught up in all of that deviance. But for the grace of God, I could be all of those things. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such were some of you. But in God's grace, he has been pleased to grant you mercy. He has granted you repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And so you came to your senses and escaped the snare of the devil. By God's grace, you came to see the filthiness and odiousness of your sins. I hope this is true for you. That they were contrary to the holy nature and the righteous law of God. You saw these things. And you apprehended, you recognized, you, you, you saw, you, you, you were drawn to the mercy that's available in Christ. And so you grieved and you hated your sin and you turned from that and unto God. What better word is there to describe that act in a person's heart? And blessed. There is no better way to describe it. You see, repentance is actually evidence of God's grace in your life. When God brings us to repentance, he's not bring us to that in order to embarrass us or to shame us or to hurt us. No, he brings us there that he might bless us by restoring right relationship to himself. Further, God's people are blessed by repentance in the removal of of the sense of guilt that sin brings. Look at verses 3 and 4, how David describes his life in unrepentant sin. He says, My bones wasted away. My strength was dried up. And we've all had 
some version of this experience that David describes in verse 3. These inward groanings over unconfessed sin and the pain that it causes for ourselves and those around us. Perhaps you've been in or are in or been witness to a marriage that's falling apart because both spouses have sinned against the other and neither is willing to repent. Perhaps you've experienced this in relationships from parents to children or children to parents or siblings amongst each other or even old friends. Relationships falling apart because neither side is willing to repent. To borrow language from one old Puritan, refusal to repent is akin to hugging your destruction. It's akin to drinking your own poison. So often our first response is not to repent and to confess, but to attempt to justify and in some way hold on to our sin. Instead of ruling over sin as God told Cain he must do, instead we let sin become master over us once more. Not only in our committing of it, but also in the hiding of it, the protecting it, the defending it. We may not always feel a literal wasting away on the inside as David describes, but we know that we don't want to talk about it. We know that any reminder of it makes us angry and irritable and difficult to be around. We become like the narrator in Edgar Allan Poe's A Telltale Heart who tries to cover up the guilt of his crime and the longer he tries to cover it up, the more mad it drives him. This is what unrepentant sin does to the Christian. It torments us. And yet our initial response is always to cling to it. It's always to try and hold on. Derek Kidner comments, if David's symptoms are exceptional, his stubbornness is common enough. I know that's true for me, and I trust that's true for many of us in this room. That stubbornness is common enough. But the good news is that even in that hard-heartedness, even in that clinging to sin, God is with us. Look at verse 4. What's he say? Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Sometimes we are tormented by the devil falsely accusing us of sin, and we want to be aware of that. But the point of the text tonight, the point that David is making, is that often it is the hand of the Lord upon us. The sense of guilt and shame that comes with sin, the pain that it causes, is evidence of God's hand upon you. He will not let his children continue in what hurts them. When I was a child, my parents had a wood-burning stove that they used to heat the house. One night, winter night, my father had started the fire before he headed off to work, and me, being a very inquisitive four-year-old, decided I was going to find out, is that thing really hot? It was really hot, guys. (laughs) I put my hand right on there and immediately yanked it back and began sobbing. And my mother came and and got me. And the point I'm trying to make here is this. I was fortunate to recognize the pain right away and recoil. If I had stayed there much longer, it could have been much worse. The longer we cling to our sin, the more pain it causes. The longer we refuse to let it go, the deeper it burns. God is trying to let you know to let it go. How do we do that? How do we let go of our sin? 
Verse 5 tells us how to do that. It is really, verse 5, is the hinge on which the whole psalm turns. This is the turning point. It is the pathway out of the groaning, out of the withering away, and into the rejoicing. It is the pathway that we might call that of sincere repentance. Let's look together at verse 5. David does at least three things here. He, first of all, acknowledges his sin. He ceases his efforts to cover it up. And finally, he confesses. He acknowledges his sin, he ceases to cover it up, and he confesses. And we spend so much time in our lives trying to not acknowledge our sin, trying to find loopholes by which that sinful behavior could be excused. I didn't lie. I bent the truth. I didn't cheat. I engaged in creative problem solving. Or any other number of ways we want to seek to justify, to, to, to change the focus on what it is that we have done. No, the first step in repentance is to quit playing word games, to quit fumbling through technicalities and say, no, what I did was sin. We need to acknowledge it. And more than that, David says, I did not cover up my iniquity. It's entirely possible to know and admit that something is sin, but still to somehow try and excuse it or cover it up or play it off like, eh, it's not that big a deal. You know, I'm, I'm sorry that I got mad and I yelled at you and that was wrong, but I'm really stressed. I'm really tired. If you just understood the day I had, I'm so, I know it was wrong, but if you just understood all these other extenuating circumstances, you'd see it really wasn't that bad. No, friends, a broken and contrite heart is not interested in any of those things. We need to cease trying to excuse our sin before God. If we want to be rid of it, if we want to be rid of our sins, we need to take them to the Lord. David would say elsewhere, cast your burdens on the Lord. And I'm telling you tonight, the biggest burden you have is your sin. David says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And that precious promise of scripture that we love so much comes immediately on the hills of condemnation to the unrepentant cities. Are you here tonight and you are worn out by your sin? You are tired of the games. Join David then and seek rest where it may be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be like the prodigal son sitting in a pile of his own hog slop that is his sin and come to yourself and return to God just as he did his father. You all know the parable of the prodigal son, I'm sure. It's a and in that parable, when he recognizes where he's at, he does what we all begin to do when we come to make an apology. He starts rehearsing his speech. He's practicing on the way, and he says, I have, I'm going to say to my dad, I'm going to say, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your servants. But you also know that as he's on his way back, going over that speech, preparing every little detail of self-abasement that he's about to say. The father sees him coming and rushes out to greet him. And the son begins to give his speech, and the father's not hearing any of that. I don't want to hear, you'll be my servant. Get him the robe, get him the ring, kill the fatted calf, for my son that was lost is found. And friends, that's the same sort of thing that's going on in Psalm 32.5. Immediately, 
upon David's confession of sin, before we're in the next verse, before the sentence is done, the very next words, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Christian, God is eager to forgive his children. He delights in it. It's, it's just as a parent may lovingly discipline their child with the sole goal being to restore relationship. And when we do return to him, confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because of the finished work of our risen Lord Jesus who saves to the uttermost. Of this verse, David Dixon would say, the only way to quiet the conscience to pacify wrath and remove judgment is to, without reservation, confess sin, to lay aside extenuating circumstances and excuses, and to fly to God's mercy. That is the way of restoration, and that is the way of joy. And so, having experienced the joy of this forgiveness, David now turns his attention to the purpose of his writing. He turns his attention tonight to the household of God. And he says to you, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. One cannot experience the joy of God's forgiveness without then sharing that with others. For my daughter's fourth birthday, we got her a rocking horse. And she loves that thing. And as soon as she had sufficiently rocked her little heart out on it, she wanted mommy to give it a try. And she wanted daddy to give it a try. And she wanted her grandmothers to give it a try. And she wanted her baby brother to give it a try. And that's the same attitude that David is displaying for us tonight. She wanted to share that happiness and that experience with those close to her. And likewise, David is inviting you, his adopted brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, to come to him in repentant hearts and so be blessed. But verse 6 also says, at a time when you may be found. And what a warning that is to anyone here tonight who is not converted. To anyone here tonight who has maybe been in the church for a long time, for decades, and you know what the Bible says about sin and hell and salvation, and you know the call of God on your life, but you're not ready to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. Perhaps you're here tonight and you think you can do that later. Like Augustine famously prayed, Lord, make me pure but not yet. Friends, you don't know what tomorrow will bring, but you know that the Bible elsewhere says it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. And you know that on that day you will either be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity, or if you do not know God and you do not obey the gospel, be cast into eternal torment and be punished with everlasting destruction in the fire of hell forever separated from the presence of the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found, because now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I see many young children here tonight as well, and this 
verse is calling to you. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're in a church like this and you're being raised singing the hymns of the faith and you're being raised under Bible teaching and memorizing Bible verses and that's wonderful. That's great and I'm, I'm excited for the privilege that's yours. I didn't get it when I was a child. But know that God calls you to do more than know about him. He wants you to know him, as the psalm says, as your hiding place and your refuge, because life is hard, and there will be much trouble, but for all who come to him, he will preserve you in the day of trouble. He will protect you, even in great trouble. Young people, there is no reason to wait, because all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And having made this beautiful invitation to his brothers and sisters to come in verses 6 and 7, David has said his piece. And in verse 8, our speaker changes. And now it is the Lord himself speaking to us. And he does this with four precious promises to you in verse 8. This is God speaking to his people. This is God speaking to the church. But what's really powerful to know is that the you here is singular. There's a personal aspect of this. And so God is speaking to you, believer, and he's saying, I will instruct you and teach you and counsel you with my eye upon you. Augustine would paraphrase this verse in this way, as if God is saying, I will give you understanding that you depart not from the way in which you should go. And in this way, I demonstrate my love to you. To all who come to the Lord with repentant hearts, to all his people, he makes these promises that he will keep his eye upon you. Look at that phrase in verse 8. He is committed to training you in the paths of righteousness, Christian. He has a personal vested interest in it. And he is watching over every single step of the process. One commentator wrote, the eye is the organ by which tender care is expressed. His eye is upon you. And in that, we have great reason to joy and rejoice. And that's the way the psalm ends. The psalm turns from that into a commendation to great shouts of joy. The psalmist rejoices because he is surrounded in the steadfast love of the Lord, as are all who trust in him. The church through all ages should know and be an example of this joy, a shining beacon of this joy. You see, if the repentance that's found in Psalm 32.5, if that's the hinge on which the psalm turns, and I say that it is, I maintain that it is from internal groaning to blessed rejoicing. It is this word in the end of the psalm, the steadfast love of the Lord that makes the whole thing work. Your translation might say uh, mercy or favor, but it's one word in the Hebrew, the, the hesed of the Lord. That is what makes the psalm work. Praise the Lord that his love for you, his love for his people is not like the love of the world. It's not like the love that means never having to say you're sorry. It's not like the love that affirms, no, you should stay in the sin that's destroying you from the inside out. 
No, it is the steadfast love of the Lord for his people that caused him to send his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish as we deserve to do, but have everlasting life. It is the steadfast love of the the Lord that is why for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The steadfast love of God for his people made a way for us to be blessed in the forgiveness of our sins because Jesus paid it all. It is the steadfast love of God that also brings conviction to us for our sins, that calls us to repentance and to walk in the newness of life. It is, how God, it is what God uses to teach us, to train us, to make us lie down in the green pastures and beside the still waters. And it is the steadfast love of God that causes all the godly to offer prayer to him at a time when he may be found. And it is in the steadfast love of the Lord for his people and his faithfulness to them that we have great cause to rejoice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word speaks things that sound far too good to be true but we know that you are a God who is too good for these things not to be true, and so we believe them. Lord, your love for us is beyond comprehension, and yet it is true. We know it is because you did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all, and how will you not with him also freely give us all things? Father, help us to joy and repentance. Help us to joy in the forgiveness of sins. Help us to joy in the covering up of iniquity. Help us to joy in your steadfast love for us. We ask in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.